that we just studied through. Like how many times Paul and other New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, and not only do they quote it, but they quote it in such a way that it sort of assumes that you, the reader of them writing that and quoting that, you're going to know where that came from and not just know that, oh, it came from Psalms, but you kind of know what that psalm is about, right? And that what that whole psalm was about through that one quote informs that new, so it's, it's stuff like that. Or how many times New Testament writers refer to Old Testament events or Old Testament people or Old Testament institutions, all these things that are like types and shadows and pictures, foreshadows fulfilled in, in, in Jesus, which leads to a third reason, which is that you'll just understand the character of God and the character of the gospel more clearly and more richly if you understand the Old Testament um, and not just a collection of morality stories, right, or example stories, but one grand unified story that progressively leads you to Christ. Um, having just finished Romans, it's good for us to remember one of the last things Paul wrote in that letter. Um, he said in Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days, that's the, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, the Scriptures being the Old Testament in that verse, we might have hope. So it's vital that we know our Old Testament. And we're going to try to uh, use this summer to accomplish that a little bit. Um, and just to give you a little preview of what we're going to do in the fall and spring at the end of this, in the fall, uh, in this, <coughs> that was a good slide. Um, oh, you would, that would have been like a touchdown in paper football. Anyway, um, in the fall, we're going to study through Philippians. Uh, and in the spring after that, will be through James. Uh, so you can be prepping for that. Um, I t I've never talked through Philippians, and I last talked through James 13 years ago, so I look forward to doing that again. All right, but before we get there, we've got to go through First and Second Samuel. I will teach most weeks in this series. Greg Key is going to tag team with me a few weeks over, the, over the, the, the time, and I look forward to him helping me out. He's a gifted teacher. Well, I've asked you to open up to First Samuel, not because we're going to read anything from that per se, but... Um, it's the most obvious place to begin. I'll ask you to turn there again next week because that's when we're actually going to dive into the story in 1 Samuel 1. Um, but, but So today I'm just going to do like I do most summers, is give you an overview, try to give you an overview, try to give you some, try to get us out of the blocks in this study. That's my, that's my aim. Um, uh, just background kind of issues, some of the main emphases that we should look for in First and Second Samuel. That's difficult, by the way. I don't know. I don't know if we ever tried to do it. Especially with First and Second Samuel together, they're like 55 chapters. It's longer than the book of Genesis. And there's so much that's happening. It's hard to just encapsulate everything you find there. Um, but we're going we're gonna to do our best. But I've asked you to open to Acts 13 as well. Why? Um, Sometimes when you're studying um, a book, we see it, it's real easy to see this in the New Testament. Sometimes it's easy to see in the Old Testament. Sometimes a book will give you, right at the outset of the book, like some just good introductory material, or they'll say up front, this is what this is going to be about. Uh, and, and you can kind of get an overview in the introduction. 
But in 1 Samuel, it just sort of just goes straight into the story. So there is not a, like, big picture passage in 1 or 2 Samuel that just sort of captures it all. There's some good passages. But I remember the passage in Acts 13 where Paul sort of helps us out. So holding your place in 1 Samuel 1, because we are going to refer to several different things in Samuel this morning. Look with me in Acts 13, and uh, we're going to read verses uh, 13 to 23. This is during Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, and they come to Antioch and Pisidia, and here is what we read, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Bless you. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and we're only going to read part of this word of encouragement. He said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, that is when God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Let's pray. Lord, um, what we just read and what we're going to read in First and Second Samuel and other places in Scripture today, we, we want to recognize that the Scriptures we are giving our attention to this morning is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And because of that, Lord, would you give us eyes to see uh, the truth in the scriptures? Would you give us eyes to see what you would have us to see? Minds to understand, uh, especially what we're going to do this morning, Lord, in trying to, trying to in- encapsulate some main emphases and, 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 and give some context to First and Second Samuel. Would you give us minds to just grasp that this morning and then hearts to embrace and see, see it as, as important, as eternally important? Uh, yeah, would you give us wills to obey whatever it is we feel you are admonishing us to do in what we read and think about this morning? Uh, give us all ears to hear by the Spirit. Give me the help that I do need to teach, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you can see why I chose that passage in Acts 13 to start this morning. Uh, first, it, it, it gives you a little, a little context prior to Samuel. 
in, 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 in the land of Egypt and bringing them out and the conquest under Joshua and Judges. And then it introduces you to Samuel, and then it introduces you to the two other main characters that we're going to see in First and Second Samuel, which are the first two kings of Israel, Saul and then David. But then it shows you that First and Second Samuel, like every other Old Testament book, has a divinely inspired trajectory um, that is pointing us to and leading us to the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that when it says, it talks about David in um, verse 22, how he's a man after, my God, God, my, man after my heart, do all my will, verse 23, but that's when Paul makes, points out this trajectory. It's of this man's offspring that God has brought Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. We've mentioned it so many times that uh, more than once Jesus said, the Old Testament is about me. Um, and so we're going to approach First and Second Samuel that way. Um, as this passage in Acts, Paul confirmed that's the way we should do it too. Well, anyway, if you held your place in First Samuel, you can go back there. Uh, I'm not sure how much we'll flip around. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention a lot of different places, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to go to the 1 Samuel 1 just so that if you do want to flip to all, some of the things, some of the places that I mentioned, you, you're, you're closer to it. And you can do that on your own. But here's what I want us to consider this morning. Uh, just as an outset, get out of the blocks in this study. So if you're taking notes, here it is. Just two broad points this morning. The first, I need to cover what I'll call nuts and bolts. Just some nuts and bolts the, answering the questions who, what, um, when, why, that kind of stuff. Who, what, when, why kind of stuff. It, this is the, the necessary kind of stuff. Uh, before any study of a book, just to get the good, good, good context and see the, the lay of the land before you dive into the forest. And then second, the second broad point is going to be just highlighting two important emphases. Two important emphases. This is where, by the way, I could have just pointed out, I could have picked so many things. You just got to, I got to pick two. And so if you think, man, he didn't even talk about that. Sorry. Um, we'll see those other things as we move through the books. That being said, let's dive in and think about first some of the nuts and bolts uh, background and context issues of these books. So I told you there's four questions that I want to address in this part. Who? Who wrote First and Second Samuel? Uh, when? When was it written? Can we know anything about that? Uh, or second will be what? As in what exactly are we looking at when we look at First and Second Samuel? When? And then why was it written? Um, and maybe answering these questions can give us some bearings that we need to, as we come into the story. So who wrote First and Second Samuel? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. Um, I think we can maybe have some plausible conjectures. Um, if you say, well, first thing, I assume Samuel wrote it. Well, there's only one big problem with that. He dies at the end of First Samuel. So... Even if you say, I think that Samuel wrote some of it, he certainly didn't write anything after that, okay? And now, interestingly, if you want to just note this reference, 1 Chronicles 29, 29. Here's what 1 Chronicles 29, 29 says. The acts of King David from first to last. Well, that's what we're talking about in First and Second Samuel. They are written in the Chronicles of Samuel, Okay, that's what we're about to study. Uh, 
and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Now that's interesting. I mean, you could say that those are three different works. Samuel had some chronicles, Nathan had some chronicles, Gad had some chronicles, or you could think those three men, in, in large part, came together and wrote what we know as First and Second Samuel. That when Samuel died, Nathan took up the mantle and Gad threw in some of his stuff. And maybe it's called Samuel because in an in a, in a ancient tradition, Samuel is the first main character in the story. And so, give it his name. But that's not like that. That's not just clear cut. Like we can know who wrote these books. But if that's not unusual, that's not unusual. It, it isn't anything unusual or even significant that we don't know exactly, precisely, hundred percent sure who wrote these books. Because when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, and by the way, in the fall uh, in CBS. In the fall, we're going to be talking about the attributes of Scripture, those that I usually mention in my prayer before we start. But when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, we're not talking about the men. Like God, we're not, we have a, maybe have a vague that God inspired Paul or God inspired this particular writer. And, it, and if you think that's what inspiration is, then if you don't know who the writer is, it might cast some question on how do I know this is inspired if I don't even know who the writer was? But when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture, biblically we're talking about what they wrote. Not the men who wrote it, but what they wrote. Think about 2 Timothy 3.16. You may have it vaguely memorized, but just the first part of that, all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. So, it is what they produced that is inspired of God. And the New Testament confirms the inspiration of these books that we're about to study. And we will see as we study through them in this series that they more than abundantly demonstrate themselves to be the product of divine inspiration. Especially as we see these books in connection with the rest of the canon of Scripture. A closely related question to this one is, when was it written? Well, when, at the very least, when the, 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 if Samuel and Nathan and Gad had a, had a large part in this, we don't know, but when the final touches and when the final compilation of this book uh, came about, it seems to be uh, after, after the lifetimes of Nathan and Gad, but not by much. And you have to piece together some clues to see this. So, for example... Um, 1 Samuel 27.6 says, So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged, and here's the phrase, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now commentators note that he didn't say the kings of Israel, or he didn't say the kings of Judah and Israel. He, he didn't mention Israel at all. He just said the kings of Judah. And you might remember that David's son Solomon, when David died, his son Solomon became king, and Solomon reigned over a unified kingdom called Israel. But when, after he died and his sons became king, 
the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom, ten tribes, was called Israel. The southern kingdom, two tribes, called Judah. Right? Um, and so for that verse to say Ziklag belonged to the kings of Judah, not Israel, seems at least to point to a time after Solomon's death, but uh, after the kingdom had split between Judah and Israel. But then you also read all through First and Second Samuel, and it's, I know this is an argument from silence, but I'll say it anyway. There isn't any mention of the exile into, into, into Assyria or Babylon. There's no mention of it. And that's significant because the exile is the most significant event in ancient Israel's history outside of the Exodus, right? And so the exile of Israel by the Assyrians happened in 722 B.C. Solomon died, by the way, in 931 B.C. Um, and so uh, it would seem that these books that we're about to study were, were came into their final form sometime after Solomon died, 931, sometime before the exile, 722. So sometime in that uh, 200-ish year his, uh, period that came to final form. To whom was it written? Uh, it was written to the people of Israel as a record of their history of this period, which gets us to the what question. What is First and Second Samuel? Well, not to burst anyone's bubble, but technically, um, there, there is no such thing as First and Second Samuel. I mean, there is now, but there wasn't originally. Um, originally, it was written as one long work, the book of Samuel. Or First Chronicles 29, 29 called it the Chronicles of Samuel. It was just one long work. But when, a couple of hundred years before Christ, they translated the Old Testament into Greek, called the Septuagint, um, it, was, it was too long for one scroll. And so they divided it between two scrolls, and that division stuck, right? And so now we come down with First and Second Samuel. But as I said, it's a, what is it? It's a narrative history of that particular period of Israel's history. That period of transition, the immediate context of 1 and 2 Samuel is the book of Judges. I mean, re re read the book of Judges. It's, you're walking into the, into the dumpster fire when you read Judges. It's awful. There's, there's nothing, almost nothing commendable in Judges. Um, but it's that, it's, that, it's that historical context uh, out of which 1 and Samuel, or 1 Samuel comes. And it's a period of... It's describing a, period, a historical transition from that period of the judges to a monarchy where Israel now has a king. Um, and it covers the, the kingships of the first two kings, Saul and then David. And as a historical narrative, think about what that is. It's, 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 it's similar to what you're going to find in the Gospels. Those aren't straight history. It's carefully selected history. Uh, and, 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 and we're going to find this same thing, too, in First in and Second Samuel. It's narrative history, but it's carefully selected history. And that's true of all history that you read. If, you, if you, you're in school, if you take his, some kind of history at Auburn, whatever particular period you're covering, they're not going to tell you everything that happened during that period. You'd never finish it in a semester. Nobody is omniscient like that to write every single thing that happened. But what are they going to do? 
they're going to pick what they perceive to be the most important things that happened during that period. That's the history. And what do we find here? That same thing, but it's God saying these are the most important things that happened in this period of Israel's history. So this is a divinely inspired record of the most significant movements and events during this period of time in Israel. Which leads to the final question we should ask, which is why? Why? Why was the transition from judges to a monarchy so significant? So significant that even though the final form took place between 931 and 722, if Samuel, Nathan, and Gad wrote most of it, that is like right on top of it happening. That's like it's happening and we're writing about it as it's happening. Why, why was it so important that people in the same generation as the events themselves were writing this down? Well, they knew something significant was happening, and it wasn't just significant because it was a change in the form of government, uh, but that this particular change in the structure of government was important for the unfolding salvation of God. And that's what I want us to see as we study through this study. I mean, it's just, it's exactly like Paul would say to the church in Antioch and Pisidia. This is history that would point us forward and move us forward to God bringing Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Why is all this important? Why is, I just spent several minutes, who, what, when, you know, Why? Why, why is all of that important? We, we can say something about who wrote it, when they wrote it, what they wrote, why they wrote it, but that, what's the answer if the reply is, so what? Like, what, what's the answer to so what? Okay, you can pinpoint the final product to somewhere between 931 and 722 B.C., so what? Okay, perhaps it was written collectively by Samuel and Nathan and Gad and others. So what? And, okay, you can fill in the blank. So what? The so what is not just that in this book we can demonstrate the connection of this to Jesus Christ. It's that literal history can too. It didn't just happen in a book like it happened in time and space history that names names that tells you where it happened with a preponderance of physical evidence still existing to this day that archaeology discovers to verify and substantiate it consider just a seemingly insignificant example from these books the hittites Okay, the Hittites show up a couple of times in First and Second Samuel. Most famously, David arranges for Uriah, the Hittite, to be killed. Uh, or Second Samuel twenty four six. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. In the early seventeen hundreds, and almost for two hundred years till the late eighteen hundreds, liberal scholars doubted 
the real existence of the Hittites. They said there's no, there's no archaeological evidence for the Hittites. They, didn't, they were trying to cast doubt on the, on the inerrancy and trustworthiness of Scripture. We don't have any archaeology, archaeological evidence for such a people called the Hittites. We have evidence for all these other people. So we, we don't even believe they were, a, they were a, a, a real people, you know. But the Bible is just a storybook anyway, they would say. But uh, in the 1880s, right, so almost 200 years later, they verified archaeological evidence for the Hittites confirming what the Bible had said all along. And that's the trajectory of things. I mean, if you're, if you're a person who's looking for hard evidence, okay, maybe there's not archaeological evidence. Maybe they haven't dug every hole that there is to be dug. But the longer they dig, what are they finding? It's, it's, it's confirming more and more of what the Bible says, not moving the other way, right? Believers are really saved because... Real history led us to a real Savior, and as Greg said at the sunrise service, who really lived, really died, really rose again as our substitute before God. And what books like First and Second Samuel teach you is that God was sovereign over the whole process, guiding history not only to lead genealogically to a Savior, but to make the way plain for His coming through promises given hundreds of years ahead of time and pictures in types and shadows. And, and we're going to see that in the, very, in the very institution of a kingship in these books. And it's, it's just the providential guiding of history and events. Well, now we've laid out some of the nuts and bolts and, uh, and given you hopefully some background and context to First and Second Samuel. I want to spend the remainder of our time, and I don't know if we'll have any time left over. Maybe we will, uh, to to think generally about a couple of important emphases. Again, there's there's so many more I could. I just had to pick two, okay, for time's sake. And then here, two important emphases. I want to mention what they are, and then pretty quickly uh, move through some examples of that in First and Second Samuel. We won't spend a great deal of time on any of these examples, for one, because we won't have enough time in one morning to do that, but for another, we're about to study through the books. So we'll come to them anyway. Um, but the first emphasis that will be so apparent to you when you come into First and Second Samuel is the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. Obviously, this is, a, this is an emphasis in Scripture from Genesis 3 all the way through the book of Revelation. But it's unmistakably present in these books. I already told you, the, the, immediate, the immediate backdrop historically to, the, to 1 Samuel is Judges. And, yeah, just, just read Judges. And you know the world you're coming into when you come into 1 Samuel. Twice, twice in Judges, in Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25, two times we read, in those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And they did some pretty terrible things. 1 Samuel is an account of a transition in Israel from no king in Israel to king in Israel. But there is no transition in the sinful state of man. 
during that time. Clear examples run throughout. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, the miraculous birth of Samuel is the very first event that you encounter. But in the very next chapter, you meet Eli the priest and his two sons, you know, Hophni and Phinehas. And Scripture itself, in chapter 2, verse 13, God calls them worthless men. They were worthless. They served in the tabernacle with their father. But you can read, it's, head, it's, it's headlined in my Bible as Eli's worthless sons. Uh, from 12 to, 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 to 21, you can read about how they would profane the sacrifices that were brought into the tabernacle. They would defraud the people who brought the sacrifices. And they were sleeping with all the women. They were so wicked that in that same chapter, the Lord strikes them dead. And the Lord rejected Eli, their father, his household, from the priesthood. Why would they, why, what about Eli? Well, yeah, you can read in chapter 2 how he rebukes his sons for doing evil, but he doesn't remove them. He doesn't remove them. like, guys, this is terrible. You're fired. He doesn't do that. He's like, guys, you know that's bad. Come on, Eli. Well, later in chapter 4, the people, are, the people it's not just Eli and his boys that are faithless. The, all the people are faithless. Because in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, this is where you read about um, the people going into to fight the, the Philistines. And they used the Ark of the Covenant. You remember what the Ark of the Covenant was. It, had, it contained in it the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And some other things. It was the it was the it was the 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 symbol of God's presence with His people. But they were using this symbol. They were using the 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 Ark of the Covenant. Um, they're using it like a good luck charm. You know, they were using it superstitiously. Uh, and and they go into battle with the Philistines, and the Ark is is captured. Um, and and the wife of one of Eli's sons gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod, which meant, tells you in the text, the glory of Israel has departed. You know? And though the Philistines eventually returned the ark uh, to Israel through fun stories, it was in that context um, that Israel demanded a king. We, we want a king like all the other nations. And it's presented as a bad thing in, in 1 Samuel, or negative. But it's, it's, interestingly, all the way back in Genesis 17, in the covenant that God made with Abraham, God told Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Hence, Little little later in the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's a whole set of laws for Israel's kings. They didn't even have a king at the time. So, they said God would appoint a ruler over Israel, and so the 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 the, the king it gave laws what the, how the kings were to conduct themselves. So you piece Genesis 17 and Deuteronomy 17 together, 
it doesn't seem wrong in itself for Israel to have kings. God said there would be, and He gave laws concerning kings. But in first, it, what, what's wrong in 1 Samuel then? In 1 Samuel, their motivation for crying out for a king was born out of their distrust in God to provide for them. They say in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, No, but there shall be a king over us for two reasons. That we may also be like all the nations. That's one. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want him to fight our battles. As if God were not already fighting their battles if they trusted him. They're using the king like they had used the Ark of the Covenant. Superstitiously. Well, Saul was, the people were faithless. Saul was anointed the first king over Israel, and while he looked the part, he didn't order his life according to, to the law of Moses, according to Deuteronomy 17. And eventually, 1 Samuel 15, 11, the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. By the way, just as an aside, if you should say, God regrets things? Later in that same chapter, we're told God is not a man that he should lie or have regret. So that's used figuratively here. In other words, it's figurative of, I'm done with Saul. Okay? So then David is anointed with, uh, as king. Uh, by the way, I'm passing over a ton in Saul's life. David is anointed as king. And for the remainder of 1 Samuel... Saul is pursuing David, repeatedly tries to kill him. Why? In an attempt to hold on to power that God was taking away from him. To hold on to the throne that God had taken away from him. Interestingly, David has more than one chance to kill Saul in return, and he doesn't do it. He repeatedly spares his life. Passing over many other examples in the life of Saul, David is now king. Interesting, uh, you come to 2 Samuel, he's, he's, he's first he's, he's king over only one tribe, Judah. For seven years, he's only king over one tribe. Uh, and then later, he is made king over all Israel for the next 33 years. But David, as we read in Acts 13, he, yeah, and in real respects, he, he, was a, he was a man after God's own heart. He nevertheless did not fully... Uh, conduct his whole life according to the law of Moses either, as Deuteronomy 17 directed. He had multiple wives and concubines, which Deuteronomy 17 says, don't do that. Um, and most egregiously, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then directed and conspired for her husband to be murdered or killed in battle. And God judges David for his sin. He says in, in uh, 2 Samuel, or excuse me, uh, 1 Samuel 12, verses 10 and 11, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart. I think I had it right the first time. This is 2 Samuel. The, um, the, the sword shall never depart from your house. The sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And that dominates the next several chapters in 2 Samuel. Uh, in the very next chapter, David's son Amnon 
um, rapes his half-sister Tamar, you know, and then after that, his other son Absalom murders his brother Amnon as a result of that. And then Ab Absalom tries to murder his own father, David, because he wants the throne and he sleeps with his wives and his concubines and he's, and he's trying to murder his dad. Eventually, Absalom is killed and his plan comes to nothing. The point is, this is like a terrible soap opera. I mean, it's like the wretched sinfulness of man just runs throughout. Even in the archetypal king of Israel, David, the story leaves you, yes, we need a king, but a better one. We need a better one. Like, we need a righteous king. And were that the whole of these books, it would be a bleak picture indeed. It would be another judge's. But also, running throughout these books, right alongside the, the sinfulness of man, is a second emphasis, which I'll just call the steadfast love of God. The steadfast love of God. Um, and you see the steadfast love of God manifested in a number of ways, two ways in particular. Steadfast love of God is the second emphasis, but it shows up in two ways in particular. Uh, which we only have time to, to note quickly. The first way that the steadfast love of God shows up is in his, I'll call it, quiet providence. Quiet providence. You say, what is, well, I'll tell you what the other one is too. The other one is his gracious faithfulness. Quiet providence and gracious faithfulness. Well, as far as the steadfast love of God being shown in his quiet providence, you say, what, what is providence? What is God's providence? I don't want to assume anything. Here's a good definition of providence. It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The providence of God, I'm not going to say it so slowly that you can write it down. You can go back and listen to the podcast. The providence of God, just listen, is His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, and all their actions. That's what God's providence is. He, uphold, he preserves. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he governs all his creatures and all their actions. We see that in First and Second Samuel often operating effectively and like irresistibly, un, unopposably, if that's a word, without, and, and, but, it, but without much fanfare. You just got to have kind of like eyes to see it. So, for example, Eli, go back, going back to 1 Samuel, Eli's two wicked and worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were acting wickedly and profaning the priesthood. And, 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 and man, they are, they are like the talk of the town. Man, they, those guys are terrible. God was quietly raising up Samuel, you know, of whom 1 Samuel 2.21 says, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Not, not, there's no fireworks there. He's just raising up Samuel. Or as, as, as King Saul was forsaking the Lord, the Lord was quietly raising up David, the least of all of his brothers, to be a man after his own heart. Or here, those are the, those are the that's the low-hanging fruit. But there's like others. 
in, in the story, if you just look at it, near the end of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, when King David is rightly pursuing the Amalekites, um, and his, his men are, are, are hungry, and his, his forces are, are dwindling, they randomly meet an Egyptian in a field who feeds them, and they're like, who are you? He's like, I'm a servant of an Amalekite. Do you want to know where they are? Sure, but just don't kill me. And they, and they, and they go, and they fight the Amalekites and rout the Amalekites because they met an Egyptian in a field. That doesn't just happen. Or just one more example. Later in, 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 in 2 Samuel 17, when Absalom is trying to kill his father David, and, and, and he's like, seeking counsel on something he wants to do. And he goes to his first trusted advisor, Ahithophel, and he gets, he gets what would have been effective counsel from Ahithophel. I mean, if you wanted Ab- Absalom's desires to come to fruition, Absalom, pro- I mean, Ahithophel probably gave some pretty good advice. But just curiously, uh, inexplicably, he uh, Absalom's like, well, maybe I'll ask Hophni, uh, what or Hushai rather, I'll ask Hushai what he thinks. Well, the text reminds us Hushai was David's friend, and uh, and so he hears Hushai's counsel too. He's got Ahithophel's, Hushai's, and it would make the most sense if if Absalom says, thanks, Hush. I'm going with Ahithophel. But for reasons that are up to that point unexplained, he's like, no, I like what Hushai said. I'm going to do what Hushai said. Why did he take Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's? Well, the text tells us in 2 Samuel 17, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The Lord's providence is is an example of his, of his steadfast love. And it just operates so quietly in these books. You, you need to have eyes to see it. He, he's quietly raising up another prophet. He's quietly raising up another king. An Egyptian just happens to be in the field. And he just happens to be a servant of an, of a, of an Amalekite. Or he's just quietly ordaining Hushai to grow deaf to the counsel he probably should have listened to for his own desi- evil desires to, to go... Listen to the advice that would ultimately lead to his downfall. I just want to say all that to say this. God's providence often operates in our lives in exactly the same way. We need to to slow down or look up from our phone long enough to just pay attention to the things that are happening in our lives so that we can see all of these quiet provisions in our lives and say, that's the quiet providence of God in my life. And give him thanks for it, right? But God's gracious faithfulness is an emphasis running throughout too as an example of his steadfast love. And to note just the most prominent example because we really are running out of time. The Lord makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. He's promised, and in that covenant in 2 Samuel 7, he promises not just to bless David in his life, but to establish David's line as a dynasty, Okay? And God knows that David 
is not perfect. He knows that his sons will be wicked and sinful. He knows that his grandsons will completely turn away from him. And so he tells David in 2 Samuel 7, and he's talking about David's descendants. When he, David's physical descendant, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And in time, God did discipline David's descendants, causing them to be deported into exile. And the, and the dynasty at that time appeared to be over. David's sons aren't kings. There's an Assyrian king. There's a Babylonian king. There is no Davidic king. Did God's word fail? But what God's promise, what, what of God's promise in, in 2 Samuel 7, that his steadfast love would never depart from David even then? Well, the New Testament teaches you that the dynasty only appeared to be over. When you... And if you, if you come, just flip over to Matthew 1 as we close. Matthew chapter 1. You come to the very first chapter in your New Testament. And what do you find? Oh, you find a genealogy. You find a genealogy of Jesus. And as you look through Matthew chapter 1, that genealogy, um, you, you, you come across verse 6. You have Jesse, the father of David, the king. Okay, there's David. Uh, and then... From that point all the way through verse 11, you have all of David's descendants who were kings. Solomon and, and Rehoboam and Abijah and Asaph and all those names. They were David's dynasty, his line of kings, all the way until the deportation, verse 11, deportation to Babylon. That's when the dynasty appeared to be over. But that's not where Matthew 1 stops. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12 through 16, you, keep, you see the, the, the genealogy keeps going and God was still keeping his promise, leading all the way to verse 16, to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, talking about Mary, Jesus was born, who is called Christ. We're going to find that First and Second Samuel not only teach you a lot about God, and about yourself, but they lead us in so many ways to Christ and his gospel. And I, I look forward to, to seeing that with you as we move through these books. And I hope that if we believe now, that by the time we get to the end of it, we will be believing even more. We don't have time to talk. I'm so sorry. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, some time around your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless our study through First and Second Samuel not just so that we would know more about the Bible, that we would know more about the Bible, but we, we, we would know more about you. And as we know more about you and your word, we would come to even greater conviction about the gospel, that as we believe even now, we would believe even more. And Lord, um, I pray that you would, you would reveal yourself to us in your word throughout this study. And give me the help that I need. Give Greg the help that he needs.